Okay, so for 2020, we closed 75 transactions for 30 point, almost 9 million. Um, and that was, by the way, up 51% uh, over 2019. Uh, GCI was 732,000, my, what I call NCI, my net commission incomes. So that is the gross commission minus cost of sales was 617.5. And they, I, I want to bounce off of that. So the 70, the 75 closings that you had last year. So that's just over six a month. If you averaged them out. They all, all those clients worked with you specifically. In other words, there was no buyer agent. There was no listing agent other than you. You were the agent that worked with them throughout the transaction, correct? Correct. And that's why we call you a solo agent. I call you a solo agent, highly leveraged because you have all these team members around you, these assistants, if you will. You got a lot of assistants running around to help prop you up, leverage, and let you work at the highest level. So from a profit margin standpoint, 84% and 20. Last year, you hit 84% net profit margin with this model. And that's why people should be listening to us. That's a lot of good take-home pay. On Yes, on a, a $30 million sale. Yeah, that's not <laughs> too shabby. It, it really is to... to for a second to, to give you the kudos of uh, the relationship that you and I have had over the years is that I was listening to you before I got licensed, listened to you all the way through. And this has been my, this has been my school. This has been my education. This is Solo Agent World, where we celebrate the accomplishments of high performing single agent real estate practices. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent and welcome to the Solo Agent World podcast. Today, we're talking with Nate Brill with Realty One Group in Phoenix, Arizona. Welcome to the call, Nate. Hey, Mike. Hey, Nate. Great to have you here. I'm real excited to talk to you today. Uh, I want to give people a little background before we get into the interview itself. Now, Nate, his real estate career has taken up quite a few uh, twists and turns over the years, and he's been in the business for seven years now, and he's gone from brand new agent to team builder to team destroyer to creating his own highly leveraged solo agent model. And that's what we're going to focus in on today. And that model closed $30.5 million in real estate last year. So you're going to want to listen to what's going on here with Nate and his, his model. Uh, today, we're going to talk about his journey. We're going to dig into each phase of his development and talk about the lessons that he's learned along the way. We're going to spend most of the time talking about why he tore down his team and rebuilt it around a highly leveraged solo agent model. All right, Nate, are you ready? Yes, definitely. All right, cool. Well, let's go ahead and jump right in. Let's talk about what I call phase one. We're going to have three phases here. In phase one, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of your real estate career seven years ago. And my first question for you is why? Why did you get into real estate? I got into real estate because I was looking for something that, uh, I, I guess I should say, I was in the process of soul searching for, for something that fit what I was looking for that was not, uh, I, don't, I don't even know necessarily that I was looking to work for myself. I was just feeling so uh, empty and lost doing what I was doing before. I worked for the same company for 12 years. I felt like I had maxed my potential there. Um, no matter how many times I had tried to sort of advance, not not even necessarily by position, but just by 
um, leadership within the company. I never felt like I was getting there. Um, and I never felt like my, my desire to get there was taken seriously enough. So I was in this like eight or 10 month period of just soul searching and trying to find what I wanted to do. And I was traveling all over the country and I just had an epiphany. I mean, literally it was like, it hit me instantaneously. I pulled the car over, I called my wife and I said, I want to get into real estate. And by that night, I was signed up for real estate school. And I, I mean, it's, it, I was off to the races. So it, it's not like I had this long drawn out, like I'm thinking about getting into real estate. I'm thinking about, you know, I would love to get into real estate because I love houses, all the stuff that I hear from other people. I didn't have any of that. Uh, but the way that I make decisions, sorry. The way that I make decisions is very quick. Um, I just, once I know that it's the right decision and it feels right in the gut, I just move with it. And that's what I did. And, and, uh, I certainly feel like it, it turned out to be the right decision. So <laughs> it worked out well. I think yeah. that's, that's a really good insight right there that once you make a decision, you take action quickly, you get the decision, you take the action. Uh, that's hard for a lot of people to do. Have you always been that way or did you have to develop that skill? Uh, I've always been that way and it has been in some ways it could be considered impulsive. Um, certainly as a child, I was always impulsive and certainly even to this day, you could accuse me of being impulsive on some things. But, and I talk with my wife about it a lot actually, because I very, very rarely reflect back on a big decision that I made and go, that was the wrong decision. I made that too quickly. I didn't think it through enough. I mean, I can almost not think of anything that makes me feel that way, which makes me trust myself more and more and more as I make these big decisions. I mean, it's the same when I decided I wanted to marry my wife. It's when I decided I wanted to have a kid, when we decided we wanted to buy a house, we wanted to move. I wanted to, you know, we moved from, from Arizona to Salt Lake City, Salt Lake City back to Arizona. Um, all of those decisions were literally as fast for me as the decision to get into real estate. So I just, I trust my, I trust my gut. I trust the decision that I make. That's a good so, point. And you built that muscle up over time, this idea of making a decision and taking quick action. So if somebody's out there, they don't have that muscle built up, just start doing it. Start with little things and build it up. So you're going to eat really fast and decide if you're going to go take a break really quick, right? Just, just do it. Yeah. Don't, don't belabor it. It's unnecessary. Right. Well, this is good. So that's how you got into real estate. Um, how long did you operate when you first got in? How long did you operate as a single agent all by yourself? So I actually started on a team. Um, if we're being, if, if I'm being honest with the very beginning, I started and I lasted a month working for some, you know, small boutique brokerage. I had started to kind of get my legs underneath me for literally, I mean, I think it was 28 days or something. And then I moved over to a very large team. Um, that actually turned out to be, uh, and I think they're still on this trajectory. They're one of the biggest teams in the country. Um, and I don't, I never really liked it when I was on that team. It never felt like a team. It felt like I was at a brokerage. Um, it had some energy. I'm, I've got nothing against, you know, there being sort of a, a culture to one of those types of groups. But um, I knew for me, when I was giving away money as a split, when I was the one doing all of the work, to bring the business in. And yes, we had it, we had a transaction coordinator, we had that type of stuff, but 
when I did the math on what I was paying versus what I was really getting out of it, knowing that I was the one really bringing the business, I, I very quickly felt like this doesn't make sense. So I was in the business for all of six months before I left that and went and started my own team. And I had the idea that I wanted to build a team. Um, after listening to your interviews from the very beginning, uh, I know you and I have talked about this before, but I mean, I listened to literally hundreds of hours of podcasts before I ever even had a license. So I had a, I had a good frame of reference on what existed out there in the industry. And I had a good frame of reference on what I wanted and what I didn't want. And so I had this idea. I wanted to be like a Russell Rhodes. I wanted to do 500 transactions. I wanted to have all these team members because again, I, and that's why I'm kind of glad you start there and like where I was before I was in real estate, I wanted leadership. I wanted to be in leadership because um, it's just, it's ingrained in me. That's just who I am. And I, I had this idea that I could, I could be that guy up at the top leading these, you know, 30, 50, hundred different agents. And I, I sort of, I started to realize even very early on that trying to manage agents feels a little bit like herding cats. <laughs> and, um, they were very nice cats. <laughs> they were people that I really liked. Um, but I had a friend tell me very early on that agents are almost by their nature, some of the most unemployable people in the marketplace, which is why they're agents because they do things to the beat of their own drum. Sometimes that's great. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes you get people that just want to be lazy and do nothing. Um, fortunately, I didn't have any of those people on my team. I just had people that weren't entirely sure what to do. And they really, it wasn't leadership for me. I started to, to feel like, first of all, I had to feed them. I was the one who was bringing the business in. And I felt, even though I could have taken that transaction, I felt that it was incumbent upon me to, to essentially provide business for my team. And so I'd end up having my buyer's agent take something that I, that I could have done myself. And so now I've given away half of my, I've given away half of my pay, even though I'm the one who did all the work to get them in the first place. Um, and then I actually got burned really bad by a team member um, that actually is, was, is, I guess, family. Um, and it wasn't so much the money, although there was a lot of money that I felt was, uh, it, it felt like I paid way too much um, and I was too gracious in it because it was a family member and more importantly than that to me was I lost the relationship with my clients. Um, I had clients that I had, um, and, and you know, my history, I mean, open houses were always my number one. That's what I, that's what I built my business on. And especially in those first couple of years, I was working 80 hours a week, probably at least. And I was doing open houses every Saturday, every Sunday, every Wednesday, every Thursday, Fridays. I was, I was busting ass um, because I believed that that's what was required to build the business. And I would meet these people and I would nurture them over the course of six, eight, 10, 12 months. Some, and, and I've even got some that, that were over the course of two years plus that I ended up having one of my buyer's agents work with. And then by the end of it, I didn't have the relationship anymore. And then worse yet, in this particular case, um, I had clients that I felt like were very loyal to me that that relationship is with me. And by the end of it, um, this 
individual essentially tried to, to take them as his own and was not able to understand why that bothered me because to me, again, it wasn't just about the money. It was about the fact that these are people that I had, I had invested myself, I had poured myself into, I had given that time and my energy from my family and poured it into these people just to lose that relationship. And so not only do I lose it on that particular one, but everything that comes after that, all those referrals, you know, the, again, the relationship is gone. And so I had this moment, I had this turning moment, um, and I don't know that it's necessarily defined. I don't think I had a moment where I said, I'm not doing this again. I think it happened that I, you know, I, I parted ways with that person and I started to kind of get my bearings on what I wanted. I was already kind of in that process anyways. Um, what I decided is that the one person that I can control is me um, in terms of producing. Um, the one person that I can rely on is me. And so I started to think about the ways that I could essentially achieve the same goal, reach the same end, which is to help more people and do more business um, and realize I don't need another agent for that. I need people that can support the work that I don't want to do that. I, uh, you know, if I look on an hourly basis, I mean, you know, I track everything and I know what my hourly wage is. And so it's really easy to determine what business, what I guess I should say, what work you're going to hand off to somebody else when you know what that work costs to pay somebody else to do and when you know what you make an hour um, or what you make in a day or you make in a month. And I, I started to very, very clearly realize that what it took for me to scale was not adding a bunch of agents. It took having the right people in the right places to do the stuff that's in the background. Um, in my, my previous life before real estate, there was a, a lady that made, I think, the, the best possible uh, metaphor. And I, I've stuck with it and I love it. And I think it lays out the case perfect. So if you look at an aircraft carrier, the aircraft carrier has only so many jets. I mean, there's just, a, in terms of like, we're talking about like an entire city's worth of people on an aircraft carrier. And only about this many of them are pilots. But the entire ship serves to support those pilots that are out. And I look at, um, I look at what I do. I'm the jet that's out there and I need the people that are on the back on the ship, making it happen. And I don't need to have a whole bunch of jets with just a couple people on the ship. And that's, that's sort of, for me, that's really the, the perfect analogy, the perfect metaphor for the way that I run things. Um, I look at it and go, do I need and if it's a definite yes, which would be lead conversion, certainly lead generation, the relationship, the, the, the heavy emotional stuff, that's all me and me specific. Marketing and the business planning, that's stuff that's high level. I don't need to be the one that's doing all of the, the, the minutia of the work that we do. Um, scheduling inspections and, you know, showing houses, that's not all me. And, and so it was it was a, a process it was an evolution and i hired uh rachel my assistant back in 2017 um and she became a true extension of me 2017 turned out to be my i would say lowest year that i've had in transactions and it was the time that i very easily could have said this isn't going to work um, I'm, I'm spending a lot of money and paying her a salary and paying her a cut off of each transaction. 
Um, and I had my business literally dropped in half from 2016 to 2017. But I was recognizing that not only did my clients have a better uh, experience, but I had a life again and my wife and my son saw me again. And so, yes, I, you know, by any other measure, I had a really good year. I did think 39 transactions, which to me just felt, it felt so like a, a kick to the gut because the previous year I had done 80. Um, but it was enough to pay her and it was enough for me to realize that that's, that was what I wanted. So that was a really long way to answer your question. But I think the year of 2017 made me realize that, that was really it. That was what I wanted. Well, there's a lot going on there. So we we moved out of phase one and went into phase two. This is the, the transition. Now let's go back to that. So actually we went into phase three. We went into the slow <laughs> age model. We jumped Sorry, all through all three that. phases, which is which is great. Let's let's go back and uh, and there's there's so much good stuff in there I want people to get. So let's go back to the very beginning, that phase one. You jumped out in the market and you went on a team for six months. Mm -hmm. uh, how long were you, uh, what was your production? Do you recall during those first six months when you were on a team as a buyer's agent? Uh, I was actually not a buyer's agent only. I was, um, I had the ability to do both buyers and sellers. Um, but let me refer to my handy dandy little brain here really quick. <laughs> Nate I, tracks everything. Every Nate tracks all his stats. Ball. He knows exactly where he's at. It's pretty amazing. That's another thing that you all should be picking up on is that Nate writes down everything that happens in his career. So he's able to refer back like he's doing right now if he's trying to remember what happened. So did you so, find it, Nate? I did. Okay. So my very first close, I got licensed in March of 2014. My first transaction was June. That, that first transaction, I actually, I closed it in June while I was on that other team, but I met those people myself second week, my very second open house that I ever did, um, I met them there. So that, that was while I was on my own. So technically I was a solo agent at that time. Um, but I did one in June, two in July, eight in August and two in September. And then I went on my own. So what is that? Well, so I did 13 transactions, 13, yeah, transactions. 13 closings in six months on the team. Now most people would be pretty excited about that because that's pretty good production and a nice little income. But as you mentioned, you mentioned all the issues that were coming up that you wanted to go out there and create leadership. You wanted to drive your own team and, and go that direction. So let's yep. jump into that part of the story again. So phase two, where mm -hmm. you are now building the team. Mm -hmm. um, how long did you build the team? How many years was that? Uh, I did a kind of, it was a little disjointed. So I left the team that I was on, it was a Remax team. I left that and started it on my own with a partner. It was, it was essentially, it was my team. It had my branding, my logo, my everything. And I had, I had a partner in it and uh, I loved her to death. I still do. She's amazing. She and I still stay in touch, but um, lead generation wasn't her thing. And it didn't last long because she realized as quickly as I did that it was, it was not good for our relationship. This is one of the mistakes I made. And I think it's something that a lot of people should hear. It's very convenient to work with somebody that, you know, it's very convenient to hire somebody that, you know, for the, to bring them on as a buyer's agent. When you have a foundation of a relationship that existed prior to your business relationship, it's very, very challenging to tell that person what to do very challenging to tell that person that they did something wrong 
or that you need more from them, which is what I found. I mean, I, um, I think everybody who's listening should take my experience for what it is. It's my experience. Some people may have had a different one and had a better, better luck doing it because maybe they recognized earlier on than I did that you shouldn't just hire people, you know, you shouldn't just hire friends. And that's what, that was my problem. Everybody that I hired was somebody that I knew. Um, and so my first partner in it, we did that year, the year that I was with her, that uh, was 2015. We did 73 transactions. And of those 73, I generated 72 of them. So, you know, it, when you're giving away 50% of everything that you make to a partner, when you're doing 99.9% .9 of the production, it hurts, it stings. And I, and I don't hold that against her at all. That was me that, that set that up. That was our agreement. And so I, you know, I stuck to our agreement, but I also, I, I recognized uh, that I didn't want that. Um, and so sort of like jumping off from that, like I said, it's a little disjointed. Then I thought, okay, well, instead of having a partner, I'm going to have, I'm going to have a, an agent. And that agent happened to be this family member I was talking about. And my understanding going into it, I don't think I could have been more clear um, was that it was not going to be a partnership. It was going to be a, uh, you know, this is my team and you're going to be an agent on my team. Um, but maybe I wasn't clear enough because it, it didn't, he didn't feel the same way. And um, again, like not just the relationships, but my business itself, my marketing, my logo, my everything started to be referred to as ours. And I was just kind of like, well, it's mine, but um it got to the point where I actually felt uh, I felt like my actual intellectual property was more at risk. And I even trademarked all of my stuff to make sure that it was mine. And, and again, these are, these are mistakes that I made early on because I did, I, I, you sort of give the benefit of the doubt to the people that you know, and you certainly give the benefit of the doubt to the people that are family. And I just, I, I started to realize that if I'm, if, if this is what I'm doing, I'm giving away the money and I'm also giving away all of this other stuff. Uh, I don't know that it, it feels worth it in those moments. Um, and, and certainly it doesn't. How many closings did you have? I think that was year 2016. Uh, so 15 was 73 transactions and 16 was 80 transactions. 80. So that you, you had this uh, new, new partner. You didn't think they were a partner. Uh, they thought you were a partner. Yep. And, and you closed 80, so you're still closing a lot of units. Of those 80, do you remember how many you were generating? Uh, that particular year, I think I generated 70, some low 70s on it, 71, 72 again, which I, I, I started to feel like was kind of my, uh, that was the threshold of what I was capable of generating. I'd seen it now, you know, two direct years in a row. Um and, you know, when you're, again, when you're generating 90 plus percent of everything that's going on, but you're giving away a huge chunk, it's, it's a lot. I can actually tell you, like, it, it's, it's astounding to me when I look at it. Uh, if I look at what my cost of sale was, um, it's, it's crazy. So in 2014, so my very first year where I was, I look at my cost of sale, just so it makes sense, anything that comes off the top of my, my gross. So that would include, I'm, I'm counting in this when I was on the other team, what I was paying in my, my cut to them the as well. The total commission that came in, the check the broker got, and now you're subtracting everything out to get yeah. to what you'd get to take home. 
exactly. that you're talking about. It's the cost of sales. Like, All those things going out to everybody else before you get yours. Exactly. So in 2014, that was $85,000 almost. Then in 2015, it was $123,000. 2016 was $195,000. So when you're, again, to your point, like you need to track this stuff. Otherwise, you don't know. You have a hunch that it's expensive. You know, you know, every time you get a check, you're like, well, that's less than I thought it was going to be. But when you start to aggregate that and you're actually tracking it, you know, that's that's how you're able to make these decisions because you recognize, okay, I look at it and go, for $195,000, is that was that the right use of that money? And, and for me, I recognize it very much was not the right use of that money. I want to point out a, a lesson I think that, that you, you've been making. I just want to make sure everybody's got it clear. This idea of a partnership can be very difficult. Most partnerships fail. I've had partnerships that have failed. Partnerships are very difficult. They look easy at the beginning. They're fun. You know the person. You don't really know their strengths and weaknesses. It can become very difficult. And uh, and so you had a part an official partnership. Then you substituted it with a quasi-partnership. You didn't think it was. They did. It did neither one worked. And I think that people need to recognize that, that uh, you were mentioning it might have been easier to go on the outside and grab somebody you didn't know and create that business relationship with them. I think that right. was one of the strongest things you've mentioned so far. And you mentioned that Rachel was one of the people that you did that with, and that's continued to be a strong relationship business-wise, correct? Yeah. So it, it, in fact, Rachel and I actually talk about it even to this day. So Rachel's been with me since uh, December of 16. So, I mean, only a few years now. Um, I, when I hired her, I made it an imperative that I did not know for that position who that person, I didn't want to know them. I wanted to establish the relationship in the, the dynamic that I needed it to be, which is that I'm the boss, I'm the team leader, and I need you to I need you to do what I'm asking you to do because this is what the business needs and this is what I need of you. And I don't feel that awkward dynamic of like, I'm trying to tell a friend what to do. I'm trying to tell a family member what to do. And uh, that was an imperative. And I've that has been my rule of thumb now. I've just hired yet another employee. It was the same thing there. I couldn't have a relationship that was uh, that was a friendship prior. Um, and so Rachel and I talk about it. And, and there are times where we're having difficult conversations, conversations where I'm having to come down on her about something. She did something wrong or I needed something different from her and she didn't do it. Um, and fortunately, those are those are few and far between. But when they happen, even though we have a friendship, that friendship was formed during this process as my employee, as a team member, she's become a family member to us. She is as much a family member to us as anybody. But she understands and I understand where that line is. And uh, it was New Year's of last year, or year before that. We had something really crappy had happened and a major ball had been dropped and she recognized it. And I recognized it for sure. And it, we had one of the most uncomfortable conversations we had had on New Year's Eve. And we were getting ready to go over to her house for New Year's Eve for the party. And she basically, after we were done, you know, and she's, she said, you know, look, I'm a big girl. I can handle this. I know that I, I screwed up, um, but you're going to come over here and you're going to be my friend and we're going to have our party and we're going to be friends together. And then, you know, come the day after tomorrow, we're, we're going to be back to business. 
we're going to get done what we need to get done, and I'm going to fix the thing that I screwed up. Um, that's one of the things that I love the most about her is that she has that self-accountability and she doesn't get defensive. But again, it's, it's because we were established the way we were and it wasn't, I wasn't having to, to change it from friend to now you're my employee. You had established roles, established roles for each part, each of you knew exactly what lane you were supposed to be in vis-a-vis that business and yep. business work. And you were able to separate that then from your newly developed friendship. Exactly. Nate, this is this is good stuff. I want to uh, bring us back into the flow of the business. So we've talked about the team and why that didn't work out and why you changed and you went into this highly leveraged solo agent model. I know people want to learn a lot about what that means. Let's define what is a so what is a highly leveraged solo agent model? What is your Let's actually go back one step. When you decided, when you first came out of the breakup of the team and you wanted to create something new, first I want to know what your vision was of what you wanted to set up as far as how this thing would look. And then second, we're going to talk about what it looks like today. But the first thing I want to talk about is what was your vision for what this thing would look like? This is not going to come as a surprise to you. I had a spreadsheet. <laughs> Nate yeah, I do because it, it organizes my life. It organizes everything. So I created a spreadsheet and I laid out all of the different job functions. I mean, as granular as I could get from showing houses to setting up showings to doing addendums and inspections and all, I, literally everything. And then I, my next column over is I said, who, who does this thing? Um, what what sort of job position does that? And if you look, if you read the book uh, E Myth, uh, E Myth Revisited, he talks about having even if you're just a, a business of one, you have to look at it as a franchise prototype. Which is that if I'm going to replicate this, I have to recognize that I've got, got all these different positions. Even if right now all of those positions are me, I need to know what those positions are. And so that's essentially what I did. I said, so this is going to be our listing coordinator. This is our uh, client care manager. This is the listing agent. This is the buyer's agent all the way down the line. And I, I essentially said, okay, so for right now, for the model that we had, I had me as the, the listing agent, the team lead, the, the, the agent for that matter. I had Rachel, who was my client care manager, my kind of right hand everything. I had my wife who's our listing coordinator. And then I had Nancy, who was our transaction manager. So I've got the four of us. Now, of all of these different things that need to be done with those particular positions, who's the person? And so I laid all of that out. And this all happened in 20, the end of 2016. That way, when I was talking with Rachel, which, for the record, I hired Rachel not as my, trans, as my assistant and what she's become. I hired her actually as a transaction manager. If I had hired her as a transaction manager and kept her that, I would have fired her a long, long time ago. But to, to what we said at the very beginning, me, I, I make decisions quickly. I recognized almost immediately that there was something uniquely special about her. And so I pivoted. And instead of saying she's going to be horrible at this job, which she would have, and she knew that as well as I did, I knew that I had something special there. And it was something that I couldn't actually hire. I had to find the right person and she happened to be that. And it's just the universe put it all together. And so now I've got the right person. And so as I'm looking at my spreadsheet, I'm looking at what the, the different functions are. She fits so many of these different things. 
and I can work within sort of her limitations uh, in her organization and the things that would not make her good as a, as a transaction manager and say, there are things that we can do here that are going to require you to learn some, some stuff and get yourself organized. Um, but your primary focus is going to be X, Y, and Z. And it became that she was that extension of me. She was uh, much more the extrovert, much more the out in the field, doing the right stuff to, to help me cultivate our client, um, where that's not what you hire a transaction manager for. Um, so that's, that's how I organized it. That was sort of my, my vision. I cast it in a spreadsheet. So you, you basically broke down every task that needs to be done inside of a real estate business or a real estate practice. Yep. And then you assigned it to different people. Now, when you went to assign it, you had already gone down the path of building a team and you had people there that you still wanted to try to fit into this model. If there's somebody listening and they don't have a bunch of people running around them, they could still do this. They could build out all the pieces. It's just they're doing all the tasks currently. And then as they maybe decide to bring somebody in to help assist, they can hand that off. But by breaking it all down into all the tasks, even if you were a solo, solo agent, uh, what I call a lone wolf, doing it all by yourself, then you would still be able to know what's going on and make sure that you're more efficient in how you're going along, uh, going about that. Would you agree? I would 100% agree. And I think the, the process of doing that also forces you to recognize the things that you like to do, that you're good at, and the things that you absolutely detest. Or even if you are, so you, you can recognize what you're good at and what you're bad at, what you like and what you don't like. And there are oftentimes things that you're really good at that you hate. I hate showing houses. Like I've just learned that I hate it. I love the buyers. I love the buyer transaction. The process of, of going around the valley and showing houses and opening doors and the stress of it. I mean, if that is what I had to do as my job, I would, I would not do this business. Like, as simple as that. And I, I think when you when you lay it out, what it does is you go, these are the things that I want to do. These are the things that I don't want to do. And now I know that I need to hire somebody for this thing. And sometimes that person, and in my case, Rachel, Rachel was able to fit a lot of those, even if just, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get to this, I've hired somebody new. Um, even if just, you know, so like, look, you're, you're, you're going to be doing things that you don't like too. So I've now there's only, there's only the, the three of us or whatever, the four of us. Now I'm doing stuff that I don't want to do, but I'm doing less of the stuff that I don't want to do. I'm doing more of what I want to do. Now she's taking off my list, the things that I don't want to do. She loves showing houses. Um, and so she's able to act in the, the capacity of a showing assistant, not as a buyer's agent, but just truly as a showing assistant, which she loves because she doesn't want to be an agent. She hates the idea of being an agent. She just wants to open the doors and have fun with the buyers. She loves to look at the pretty houses. Um, and so, you know, there's other stuff that, that, you know, we look at it. And now that I have that, and I still recognize, even though Rachel's the person doing, you know, X, Y, Z, all these different things, it's the same thing. What does she like to do? What is she good at? What does she not like to do? What is she not good at? And now I can now figure out, now that I've got the, four, the right person on the other side, now I've got somebody else that I can take other stuff off of Rachel's which makes her more efficient and more uh, happy as, as, a, as my assistant and, and her position. And it makes all of us much more efficient when we're all doing the right stuff. 
It's a really, really great point. I'm listening to you and you mentioned that at this point in your career, you do not like running a buyer around in a car. I just this morning talked to a, a gentleman who's been doing real estate for 32 years and he loves buyers. That's his entire business. He just closed 38 of them last year. He just loves working with buyers. Everybody has something that they enjoy and don't like. So if you're listening to us and you like taking buyers around, that's okay. You can build a business around that. Uh, Nate has just figured out what works for him and he's building his business around what works best for him, makes him smile every day. And that's what I really like about his model. Nate, let's do this. I, I, people are probably wondering, wait a minute, is this guy a solo agent? Is he not a solo agent? What is he? So we need to stop here for a second and describe this team. The fact that I just want to ask a couple fast questions. Maybe this will help. Are you working with every buyer and every seller in the business? Every single one. You are, you're going out and meeting them. You're prospecting them. You're finding them. You're creating the relationship. And uh, then you're just handing off this one little task of showings with a, a buyer, but on the listing side, you're taking them all the way through the buyer side. You're taking them all the way through, but you're handing off certain tasks. In this case, the showing task. Once they go under contract, I assume you're handing off the task for closing them up to a transaction manager you've been referencing, but you're creating the relationship from the beginning. You're carrying it all the way through to the end. It's not a superficial relationship. You're actually talking to them throughout the entire transaction, correct? They see me as their agent because I am their agent. You're negotiating every single contract, whether it's a buyer or a seller? Every single contract. You're, you're uh, taking care of the negotiations on the inspection if they come up with every yep, single buyer and seller? Yep, when it's my buyer, or not when it's my buyer, when it's our buyer, um, I'm at the inspection. When I, you I, go back to the beginning, when you're prospecting, you're doing all the talking with them to get them into your system and into your life? Everybody. After they close, you're the one that's staying in touch with them and following up with them and building the relationship for repeats and referrals? Absolutely. So I'm hoping but, some of those questions are going to help people see this big continuum. Yeah. What you're doing, you are maintaining that relationship because you mentioned that was the biggest thing that was gnawing at you earlier when you were yes. doing the team or the quasi team is that you felt you were losing that relationship. And now you completely control that relationship, correct? I completely control it and to bring it to, to kind of circle it back around. So in, in identifying what I'm good at and what I like to do, what it allowed me to, to realize in myself is that the most important thing to me is the relationship. And so for me, by not doing all of this other ancillary stuff, my focus is the relationship. And so when I am meeting people, whatever lead source they are, I mean, at this point, we're 80% past clients and referrals and, and, you know, that sort of business. So it's all very, very warm, business. It's, this is not stuff where I'm getting these cold leads in here. So the nurturing is very different. Um, the thing that I love, and I think that has made me feel more successful in this model than anything is how often my team is referenced by my clients um, in the reviews that they leave us on Zillow, in their discussions with me and how great my team was and how good of a job they did taking care of them. The fact that they have a wonderful, real, true, beautiful relationship with Rachel, but they know that Rachel is, they, they understand where she is in, in sort of the, the structure of this. They know that, that I'm their agent and that Rachel works for me. 
And Rachel and I have a very playful, almost brother-sister dynamic, which our clients love. Um, and so I know that the entire time that everything is happening throughout the transaction, from the very, very start, the, the, the before, during, and after, they know me, they recognize me as their agent, the relationship is with me, and the relationship is with us. So anytime that I write a thank you card, it's Nate and team. It's, you know, it, the, it, we collectively took good care of them throughout the process, but I'm their point person. Every single Tuesday, I make my client and process call. So anybody who's listed, active, um, under contract or whatever, they're all getting that contact from me from the time that we go under contract until the time we close, from the time we listed on the market till the time we close. So there's no loss of relationship there. And again, I am the agent on 100% all of these transactions. So... Nate, do this for us at this point. Describe your current organization, your the group that you have working around you. You're kind of like the sun and you have planets that are kind of rolling around you and you're you're in the same um, uh, solar system, right? You, your group <laughs> is a solar system uh, and you're the sun. We know what you're doing now. Describe the planets that are rolling around you. What, are, what is everybody else in this group doing? So I am the team leader and I am the agent. Um, I am the one running the business. I am the one, you know, managing those relationships as we just discussed. So I think everybody has a good sense of what I do. Um, Rachel is the next person that has the most uh, client facing interaction. Rachel is very involved in setting up um, inspections when we have inspections. What's her title? Uh, she is the client care manager. Rachel is the one that when something needs to be done, a task needs to be done for a particular client. If we need to set up an inspection, we need to set up repairs for that client. We need to set up showings for that client. Anything that is related to the transaction and to the client, but still like it's, it's not paperwork. God forbid it be paperwork because it's going to be screwed up if she does it. Just like it would be if I did it. Um, that's what Rachel does. And so she's kind of, uh, she, there's sort of the umbrella of anything related to, we need to take care of this client. And sometimes that means just, you know, giving them a call and, and, uh, taking care of something for them that is, is, uh, just going to take something off their shoulders, something that isn't necessarily an agent, uh, or, or a real estate transaction thing. It's just something that's going to help them because we're, we're, we happen to be in their life at that moment. Um, and then there's my wife. She's the listing coordinator. She's the one that takes it, uh, you know, from the time that we, uh, I know we're going to get a listing. I do a, a quick intake that shows, you know, what the price is, the property, all that stuff. And then, uh, Krista, my wife, she's the one that puts the listing paperwork together. She orders the sign, orders the pictures. Um, she's the one that sends off all of the listing paperwork. She's the one that puts it into the MLS. So she's doing all of that stuff at the front end to get the listing ready. She's also our closing manager. So our closing manager is the person. So she will order for all of our sellers. We have a, a seller book, which is basically all of the, the really nice uh, pictures that our photographer took. We put it into a nice bound book. So she's the one ordering that. She's the one, as soon as we've actually closed the transaction, she closes out the file in our system. Um, she's the one that uh, sets aside the settlement statement for the next year. So all of that stuff happens by Chris. Um, and then our newest member, we just... We had Nancy, who was our transaction manager, 
And she was a third party 1099. She didn't, she was part of our team. We identified as, uh, you know, her with our team. She had a, a Brill team email address, but she was 1099 and she, uh, she did transactions for both me and another agent and a couple other ones on the side, which by the way, is something really good for people to know that you can do that. And it's a really great way of not, uh, uh, overburdening yourself with a salary with an actual employee, you can 1099 somebody and they can, I mean, you, you still tell them what you need done. But, um, the reason why we transitioned from Nancy over to Michelle is first of all, Nancy's retiring. So that was like the, the wake up moment, like, aha, okay, we need to change. And we're at the point now we're doing the kind of volume. And I always had this in my mind that I needed my own transaction manager. I didn't need it. I didn't want some, I just didn't want somebody who was a transaction manager that I was hiring to do that like a service. I needed another team member that was dedicated to the Brill team that did things exactly the way we do them and exactly the way that I say and we say it needs to be done. And Michelle was actually, um, she was an escrow officer for one of the title companies we used. And she was just, absolutely amazing on all of our transactions and we had a great relationship with her and the timing just happened to be perfect that when I was looking for this position, she was looking for a change and she fit not just the, 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 the ability to do the job, but the culture of our team. And which is by the way, the most important thing you can find. Like I said, I hired Rachel for something she'd be horrible at. I kept her because she's the right person. I hired Michelle because not only is she the right person, but she's also good at the job that she can do. But she is now going to be the person that takes all of those other admin tasks that I currently have Rachel do that Rachel does not enjoy, which would include things like putting together the, the CMAs that we do, um, sort of the, the data entry side of things that she's just not, she doesn't enjoy, she's not good at. Um, and she's taking those off of her plate because Michelle is a very high C and she's very, very, you know, dialed into that type of stuff. And she loves that kind of stuff. She loves the spreadsheets. She loves the paperwork. And so she's the, not only going to be doing all the stuff in the capacity of a, of a transaction manager, taking everything from contract to close to all of that, but um, she is assisting in sort of unburdening, not only myself, but also uh, Rachel and Krista for that matter, from extra um, admin type of stuff that none of us really have the time or want to do because now instead of uh, our transaction manager working for us and several other agents now because she's dedicated to us she has time to manage our transactions and do that other admin stuff so if i were to ever add a fifth person if we had so much business then michelle would become the dedicated only tc transaction manager transaction coordinator and then we would have an admin assistant for all of the rest of us doing basically now that, that all of that admin stuff would have gone from me to Krista, from Krista to Rachel, from Rachel to Michelle, and now Michelle to this other person. That would be that next person down the line. But I feel very, very confident that at the structure that we have with the four of us, we were at 75 transactions this year. I feel very confident that we can get to 100 transactions without ever having to hire anybody else and without having to hire a buyer's agent. You know, you brought up a good point. Thank you for giving us that look at the organization. Uh, I'm sure people want to know uh, what your production is, and you just brought it up. So tell us, for we just wrapped up 2020 last year. Tell us what you did uh, in units, uh, GCI, and uh, profit. Yeah, so you're talking about for 2020? 
for 2020, the year you just wrapped up with this group of people that you're just talking yeah. about? Okay, so for 2020, we closed 75 transactions for 30 point, almost 9 million. Um, and that was, by the way, up 51% uh, over 2019. Uh, GCI was 732,000, my, what I call NCI, my net commission incomes. So that is the gross commission minus cost of sales was 617.5. Nice. Thank you for sharing. Nate tracks all those numbers. He knows exactly what's going on. Uh, as you just pointed out, he knew that his uh, volume went up 51%. Do you know if your volume went up or down over last year by what percent? You need to know this stuff if you really want to dig in. And they, I, I want to bounce off of that. So the 70, the 75 closings that you had last year, so that's just over six a month if you averaged them out. They all, all those clients worked with you specifically. In other words, there was no buyer agent. There was no listing agent other than you. You were the agent that worked with them throughout the transaction, correct? Correct. And that's why we call you a solo agent. I call you a solo agent, highly leveraged because you have all these team members around you, these assistants, if you will. You got a lot of assistants running around to help prop you up, leverage, and let you work at the highest level. Right. Um, let me ask you this. Yeah, you're a big thinker. You're looking out in the future. How big do you think you can take this model where you are the uh, the only sole agent, you have staff helping you, how big do you think this can get? Is this the biggest it's gonna get? And the reason I'm asking is you mentioned earlier that you thought you were gonna cap out at 70 some units. Well, now you're 75. Do you think that you're gonna be able to go bigger, keep it where it's at? What's your what's the future look like in the next couple yeah. of years? So I'll tell you for 2021, 20, uh, my goal is to get to 100 transactions, which I said earlier, I think I can do with the model that I have. So keep in mind, um, I felt limited in the 70 range because I was still doing, even though I knew that eventually I wouldn't and I still had other stuff that was kind of like, it was under the Nate category, but it was it was a separate job that I shouldn't be doing, but I'm currently doing it because I'm the only right one to do it. Or I had Rachel doing stuff that Rachel shouldn't have been doing that I should have had somebody else doing and now I do. So by bringing Michelle on, which that was part of my thinking and bringing her on, um, I feel that I will be not ever 100% because I think there's always going to be distractions, but pretty close to 100% in, in the capacity of what I should be doing. I have Rachel call it 90% of what she should be doing. I have Krista pretty much 90 to 100% of what she should be doing. And I have Michelle in 90 to 100% of what she should be doing. And the reason why that's important is because with all of us doing what we should be doing, that means that none of us are doing stuff we shouldn't be doing, which means that for me, I'm not doing a bunch of stuff that I shouldn't be doing that's keeping me away from continuing to lead generate and lead convert. Um, and very importantly, um, people think, and, and I hear this a lot, I even hear it when I'm listening to interviews with people, that the only thing that you're doing if you're not uh, working with a client is lead generating and lead converting. Those are not the only two extra things. Um, having the, not only the actual time, the hours in the day to do it, but also the mental freedom to focus on growing the business and analyzing the business and determining what your next steps are, which includes who do I hire? How do I break this down? 
the CEO level stuff, that requires having the confidence and the faith in your team that they're doing the other stuff that you would otherwise be doing and you feel confident enough to let it go that you're able to focus on this other stuff. So uh, my wife, it's funny. I'm the, we, our team, we're the number one minus some mega team that's at our office. Uh, but other than her, we are the number one in the office. And people who know us wonder what the hell I actually do. <laughs> and I get it all the time. Like you got all these women that work for you and they're the ones that are actually making it happen. Like what the hell do you do? And it's funny because, you know, both my wife and I, we office out of the house and she'll step in and she's like, look, I know he's a lazy ass, but he's in there all day. I'm in the office all day working. She hears me on the phone. She knows she's on, I'm working on the computer. I'm certainly not sitting around doing nothing. And the reason why is because the things I'm focusing on, I am very heavily in the marketing camp. Um, and so that I spend a lot of time on my marketing. I spend a lot of time on my analysis of my marketing and what the next steps are going to be and what the next things are we going to do for marketing. And so because my, because my brain is free from it, my time is free from all this other stuff, I'm able to do that. And it's very, very important because, you know, sometimes people just feel like, well, I'm just going to call everybody I know. I've got to call every lead that's in my, in my, you know, CRM. That's not, that's not the entirety of what a business should be. Um, I've, I've got some friends, other agents that are in this business that are solo agents, true solo agents, like, like lone wolf, like you said, um, doing less volume than I do by a considerable amount, working twice as many hours as I work, or even if we're working the same kinds of hours, the, the hours they're working on are all transactional in the trenches business. They are not working on the business. They are working in the business a hundred percent of the time. And I'm not, I, I'm working on the business probably 80% of the time. Well, Nate, I'm, I'm glad that you've got this big goal of closing a hundred transactions this upcoming year. And I can't wait to keep up with you and find out if you achieve it. I'm going to throw out to you that I get to talk to a lot of people. I'm in a very fortunate position. And I can think of a couple of people right off my top of my head that have a highly leveraged solo agent model. One closed 130 transactions as a highly leveraged solo agent. The other closed 180 transactions as a highly leveraged solo agent. I'm throwing that out there for you to know that you can expand and grow as well as our listeners to know that there's a lot of room. There's a lot of path here uh, yeah. that you can do now. You Interestingly, a lot of people go to the team model to gain time. You went to the highly leveraged solo agent model to not only gain time, but profitability. And so what I'd like to do is compare when you ran the team and when you ran the highly leveraged solo agent model on one metric, and that is profit. So you had two years where you were running the team at around this volume level, and now you just ran the, the solo highly leveraged solo agent model at this level. And as far as units, and my question for you is, which of the two was more profitable? Which one did you take home more money? And can you give us any dynamics to that? Absolutely. So um, I look at it, again, I've got, my, I've got my gross profit and I've got my net profit. It's really important to, to understand the distinction there. Um, because so gross profit is just taking off the, the major expenses just to get it in the door. And the net profit are all the expenses to run your operation and how much you actually take home, correct? Absolutely, right, exactly. So when I'm measuring my gross profit, I'm looking at what's, what is it actually costing me to do the transactions. So 
2014, I had a 53% profit margin. 2015, I had 72%. 16 was 64%. 17 was 69%. So I'm going to stop at 17 for a minute because 17 was the year that I first went to this model. It was also the year that I had, um, I had that really bad year. I mean, bad, bad by my measures. It had so, fewer units because we were switching models. Yes, exactly. And I was, you and I talked that year. I was in a funk. You were in um, a funk. I was in a funk. Um, Look at what you came up with out of that funk. So, by the way, if you're listening and you're in a funk, keep pushing. Yeah, in fact, in fact, to plug your, your other podcast, um, people can go back and listen to my interview. I, I myself have gone back and listened to my interview a couple of times because it, it really is to, to – for a second to, to give you the kudos of uh, the relationship that you and I have had over the years is that I was listening to you before I got licensed, listened to you all the way through. And this has been my, this has been my school. This has been my education. And so you and I talked the end of 2017, I was in a funk and I was in this place where I didn't know quite what the next year looked like, but I knew I needed to change. It. And I was in this like really deep intellectual, like, what the hell happened? How the hell did I go from 80 to 39 in one year? Because I couldn't figure it out. It wasn't our market. Our market was great. But I, my own internal market sucked. And it was it was because I was in my head way too much. And I hadn't figured it out yet. Um, so after that shift, I go from 69% profit margin. And we jump up to an 83% profit margin. And by the way, that year to give kind of the, uh, that mental shift. I went from 39 transactions back up to 58, um, from 11 million to almost 20 million and back up. I was back on my game. I had my head right. And it has been a very steady growth from there. So from a profit margin standpoint, 83%, and 19, 84% and 20 and 81% and 21. That's your estimate uh, estimate coming up. But last year you hit 84% net profit margin with this model. And that's why people should be listening to us. That's a lot of good take-home pay. On Yes, on a, a $30 million sale. Yeah, that's not <laughs> Well, people ask, what are the different models? I'm all about looking at the different models and the solo agent, people think you can't make any money as a solo agent. You can make a lot of money as a solo agent. Uh, just you depends more on money the structure. Yeah. I've got friends that run big, big teams, and their top line is huge. Their bottom line is not. And if you, if people Sometimes just want to measure, it can be upside down. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. I, I've, you know, I heard somebody say like, "Man, I had an amazing year. I made a million dollars last year." Problem is, it cost me a million dollars to get there. <laughs> right. What is any of that worth? Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, Nate, this is this is fantastic. Uh, this is really exciting. I, I have a question for you, and that's this: if if you were to have it, or if you were able to walk into a time machine and go back to the day one when you first started and talk to day one Nate, you just walk up to day day one Nate, and you can whisper in his ear. What would you tell him to do as far as building out this business? What would you tell day one Nate to try to save him time and jumpstart the career? I thought about this. And, 
the truth is I don't know that I would tell myself to not try a team. And the reason why is because this uh, yearning that's in me, which still exists, by the way, to do really big things is there. And I feel like I almost needed to go through the process to recognize that I didn't want a team to, to try it on, to know that that was the, the, the right path for me personally was to not have that team. But if I were to tell myself anything, I would tell myself to not hire people I know. Like, I mean, that would be the number one thing I would say, because I actually think I, maybe I could have built a more successful model. Maybe not. I don't know. Uh, maybe I could have built a better team model if I had hired people professionally as opposed to personally. Um, I think it's it's a huge mistake that people make uh, because they it's convenient. And you assume that because somebody's a good person, they're a good friend or whatever, that they're going to be a good teammate, and they're not always the same. Even when they're a bad teammate, they can still be a good person. But if they're a bad teammate, and sometimes, you know, depending on the situation, you might find that, this is a business that has a lot of money in it, a lot of money to be made. And there's a lot of money that is in a, each individual transaction that gets split and uh, it can change people or it can at least change a relationship if nothing else. So that's the one thing I would say. Uh, absolutely. I would be, if I could do it over again, that's what I would do. But my hindsight says I love what I have now. And I don't know that I would if I didn't go through it. So I'm, I'm glad I went through it. Very good. So I think that was another lesson that we picked up. We mentioned it earlier, and that is push through these hard times. You may be on the cusp of something great, but you mm -hmm. got to keep pushing. What if you would have quit when you fell down to 39 transactions? Just said, ah, I'm out of here. I, I just can't live with this. Yeah. You had to push through that. There's a book I'd highly recommend for people. It's a Seth Godin book. Um, it's called The Dip. And in The Dip, he's talking about it's not just business. I mean, it's in life too. And you look at people going through law school, you look at people going through medical school and there's this really long slog of just, just the churn and burn and burn and burn. And you don't know when the upside happens. And if you did, you wouldn't, you, people would never quit because if it's just ahead of you, ahead of you, you just keep going and, and you make it, but we don't know that. And I think, um, like my, my wife has told me before that, she sees me as like a bird up on a uh, on a twig, up on a you know, 300 foot tree, and I'm not afraid to sit on the twig because I know that if that twig breaks, I can fly. And when I was in 2017, and again, you you and I spoke during this time, like I was I was really analyzing. I'm going, what the hell did I do wrong? But I knew what I was capable of, and I knew that if I'd done it before, I can do it again. And this time I've got my head right. And this time I've got my people right. And so, yeah, I didn't quit. And, and the other side of that dip, you know, because the, the dip, the whole idea is that you start out with all this enthusiasm and you're super excited. You just got licensed. You're getting going. You're going to get out there. You're going to do open houses. You're going to do all this stuff. And then as time goes on and your energy wanes and your excitement wanes, you're down in the dip. And, you know, you're looking for these external forces to bring that energy back up and you can't, those external forces aren't going to do it. It has to come within and your energy to keep pushing has to keep coming within. And then that's what, that's what brings on the business. That's what, I mean, my change in mindset, my change in sort of business philosophy is what brought me from 2017 
18 inch where I am today. Um, and so, you know, I'm prepared. Another crappy year could happen again. But, you know, I, I know that I'm capable and I know my team's capable. So, very good. Nate, this has been so good. I, I've come to the end of my questions for today, but I'm wondering, do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? Yeah, I would say that um, I guess I would hope that there are people that are listening to this podcast that are in one of two camps. Either they are a solo agent that believes that they're incapable of growing further than where they are, and I know lots of those, or they know they're capable of growing from where they are um, but don't want to let go, and I've definitely got those friends, people that are very, very good agents, and they're going to give themselves a heart attack if they keep doing the business they're doing at the rate they are by themselves. Let go. You have to let go. I am, I'm very much Teflon Nate. Nothing sticks to me because I delegate it off. And it doesn't mean that there aren't things that you delegate off that you feel unsure about and you hope it goes the way you're, you know, in your mind, you would do it. Um, but I heard somebody say once, if somebody can do it at least 80% as well as you let it go. If they can do it at least 80%, it may not be what you would have done, but if you were to do it and you do everything, you're never going to be able to get, you're never going to be able to grow. So if it's 80% today, because I just handed it off, then it gets to 85%, then it gets to 90%. And now you've got people doing it better than you are. Everything that the other three members that I have, they do it way better than I do. Anytime I touch a piece of paper in my business, I screw it up and my team hates when I do paperwork. So that's the one camp. But then the other is I imagine there are, and again, I would hope there are people that are in the camp that I was before I decided to kind of go down this route. They have a team, they have team members, they've got buyer's agents, they've got listing agents. They're trying to work the model um, that they hear works so well. They hear these agents that are doing all this monumental business and they're trying to do it themselves and they're recognizing the same thing. Like I'm giving all this money away. I'm giving the relationships away. I'm giving away business that I shouldn't be giving away. I hope that they recognize they can still reach their goal and they can still have the life that they want, which is the whole idea most people have in, in creating a team. They can have that while still retaining those relationships and still doing all the business. You just have to look at what it means to be a team differently. I am definitely a solo agent. All of my production is my production, but I am definitely a team in that I couldn't do this by myself. Guaranteed 100% by myself I would die and I would quit so I hope that helps <laughs> that does Nate that was fantastic well I really appreciate you coming in today and talking with us and sharing your journey Nate thank you so much for talking with us of course absolutely thanks Mike uh, thank you Nate well that's it for now thanks for joining us on the solo agent world keep moving forward bye this has been another episode of Solo Agent World. Enjoyed what you heard? Hit that like button. Plus, remember to subscribe and click that notification icon so you'll be the first to receive all the latest episodes. Love the show? Leave us a five-star rating and write a quick review. If you know a solo agent that we should interview, yourself or someone else, let us know at mastermindagent.com. And if you have a solo agent friend who could benefit, tell them about the show. Thanks for listening to Solo Agent World. Keep smiling and keep moving forward.